All right. How's it going, New Hope? Thanks for joining us. Uh, you just heard an exhaustive bio of our guest today, Sky Jatani. Sky, how you doing? Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sean. I'm grateful to be with you. Uh, reading that out um, made me feel like I didn't know what I was doing with my life because you've accomplished uh, a considerable amount of things. So uh, impressive work. When you, I know you travel a good bit when it's not a, a global pandemic uh, and you meet somebody and they say, what do you do for a living? I was wondering how you would answer that because you, you have a, an eclectic uh, mix of things that you do. How would you answer that? Uh, it's definitely changed in different seasons. And my kids who are teenagers ask me like, dad, what do we tell people when they ask what you do? Uh, right now, the most common answer I give is I'm a writer, which yeah. usually provokes a second question then, which is what do you write? And then right. it's, I usually write about issues of faith and culture and the intersection of the teachings of Jesus with contemporary issues. And depending on the person who's asking that can open up a whole can of worms. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for being here. I when when you know we're in we're in this series called the Way Forward, as I've explained to you, just trying to help people in our church that are followers of Christ navigate what the word that I've landed on is chaos. It just feels chaotic out there in so many different ways. And we came to the topic of politics, and I was just pondering who would be a thoughtful person to talk about how followers of Jesus can engage in politics and you you instantly came to mind. So I know you're a busy guy. We're, we're really grateful for you being uh, here with us today, sharing your wisdom. Uh, just to get just a, a touch of the personal, because I always appreciate that. Um, I read a bunch of, of your resume, obviously, and what you've accomplished, but just maybe two minutes, 30,000 foot, 30, foot view of your life, kind of who are you? What's your story? I know that's probably uh, impossible to do, but give us a little color in the lines a little bit for us. Uh, sure. I, I grew up where I live now, which is just outside Chicago. Um, my wife and I have known each other since high school. We've been married for 21 years. I come from a pretty diverse background. My father's an immigrant from India. My mother is a Chicago native, mostly of Scandinavian background. Um, my training background, I went to a state university, studied comparative religion and history. So a lot of years studying Islam and Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism and all that good stuff. Went to seminary at Trinity, just outside Chicago again. I was a pastor, a local pastor for a number of years. Um, we never seem to get out of Chicago. I've tried many times, but we're, we're kind of locked in now. And we have three teenage kids, uh, two girls and a boy in the middle, one in college, one in high school, one in middle school. So we're kind of, you know, just living that reality now. I don't know if that's enough color for you. No, that's great. I I, I, li I do listen to your your podcast, uh, The Holy Post. And I, I think if it's okay to mention, I heard recently you guys kind of had a COVID scale, scare with one of your, your kids. Is that okay? Is she doing yeah, No, everyone's fine. And in fact, after many tests and retests, I am pretty sure we never had it and nobody did. Okay. So one of those false positives that sends everybody into a tizzy. And then I also heard you got a puppy. Is that accurate? Uh, we are in the process. We should be getting that puppy in about a week and a half. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are making weird family decisions in this season, like <laughs> home remodeling, other things. We we are our dog is 15 years old, and we oh, let's let's get throw a puppy into the mix. All right. Well, it seems like your dog people, but I would my advice would be get some sleep now. Uh, <laughs> right. For when the puppy comes. All right. Let's let's dive into our topic, um, which is essentially politics so I, I, for all you new hope folks watching just just take a deep breath it's <laughs> gonna be okay uh hopefully sky and i will not say anything that will make you want to cancel us and get angry but we want to challenge you and we want to equip you i think 
a sky when I, you know, being a pastor now for 25 years or so and, and being out here in this season, I don't want to oversimplify it, but it seems like followers of Jesus either are taking the route of um, they're just exiting the scene. They're like, I want nothing to do with this foolishness. I'm not going to become politically involved. And that doesn't really seem the, the prudent way, in my opinion, or or they're so engaged that it's become almost an ideology and identity. Um, in due respect to those people, it seems like it's it's become more important than their faith. So as a pastor, I'm like, ah, oh, there has to be a better way. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll present some tools and practices for you this morning uh, that will lead to that better way. And it got me thinking about your book you wrote in, I think, 2016, right before the last election, if I'm remembering correctly, called called The Voting Booth. And for those of you who aren't readers, it's a short book. I think it's 60 pages and it's as is your hallmark sky, very creative. And uh, it's a conversation between someone who's a Christian and then three of these positions or pathways that you outline in the book that are you kind of personify as people and they're having conversations with this Christian. Uh, very well done, highly recommended, uh, easy to find wherever books are sold. So I want to talk about that and dive into some of those things. For Some folks may have read the book, but probably most haven't. So can you uh, just briefly lay out maybe the first two pathways for people and not yet the one you advocate and uh, just describe those pathways and then why you feel like they're inadequate? Great. Yeah, they're they're both rooted in the Old Testament. So if you kind of call to mind any Sunday school knowledge you may have, the, the two of the main narratives or stories in the Old Testament regarding God's people and how they relate to the world are Exodus and exile. So the Exodus story was about the Israelites being slaves in Egypt and God rescuing them out of that slavery. And then he calls them to be separate, to not only leave Egypt, but to be distinct and separate from the rest of the pagan cultures around them. And he gives them laws and, and regulations and a way of life that would maintain that separation. So the first path that I think a lot of Christians have taken uh, historically and some still today is this Exodus approach, which is essentially the world is a, is a corrupt place. Politics in particular is dirty and ugly, and we should just not be involved, just separate as far as we possibly can and maintain our uniqueness and our distinction, our holiness. The other major narrative in the Old Testament is that of exile. So later on in the stories of like Daniel and Jeremiah, and you might recall some of these, God's people are um, overrun by the Babylonians, Jerusalem is destroyed, and a lot of the Jews are taken into exile in Babylon. And while they're there in this pagan land, God gives them an instruction, which is often um, promoted among Christians today through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So this exile approach, uh, when it applies to Christians today, is essentially you know, our culture is very pagan. It's very post-Christian. It's it's not affirming of our faith the way it once was. It's essentially like Babylon. And we as God's people need to figure out how to survive in this Babylon until we can get the heck out of here, until we can get back home or heaven or however you want to put it. So that means we need to uh, seek the welfare of this place where we find ourselves. And we do that through influence by getting more economic, political power, and ensuring that we can maintain ourselves in the survival of our way of life long enough to get out of this, this exile, this Babylon. So one is about separation from the culture, and the other is about influence of the culture. And as you've already alluded to, John, I, I essentially argue in the book that both of these, while biblical in an Old Testament sense, are insufficient and ultimately fail 
the New Testament ethic that I think we're called to in Christ. Yeah, you you sum up. Um... If, if I'm correct, you wrote the book, so you can always tell me when I'm not correct. But the Exodus is is a word you use is comfort and flight. So if you're if yeah. you're following along at home, these are you know different ways to think about these two paths that Sky is is holding out to us. Exile instead of comfort, it's control. So there's power mechanics involved there, and then the word instead of flight is fight. So, yeah, just as you're hopefully taking notes and tracking along, I think this is very helpful. I would agree with Sky in my opinion. It seems like these are the primary two pathways, and, and they do seem presently to be inadequate. Before I ask you to lay out your recommended pathway, I thought it was really insightful and interesting that you linked both the exodus and the exile pathways to fear. You, you, you argue that they're driven by fear. And laying my pastoral cards on the table, I think that's one of the things I struggle with most in my own heart, um, but also in, in the folks that I see out in the world that profess to follow Jesus. It's understandable. There's lots to be scared of in the world, so there's no judgment there. But why are so many followers of Jesus fearful? <laughs> what's your What's your opinion? You're kind of the culture intersection huh. guy. I mean, I'd see your and like, what's the danger of that fear based living? There doesn't seem to be much difference, in my opinion, from people who follow Jesus and don't. They're They're both triggered by fear, and I think politicians so mm -hmm. well use that trigger. So, talk to us a little bit about fear and and your concerns about that. Yeah, uh, I mean, you've already alluded to the reasons. I think there's there's a biological one and there's a social one, and maybe a spiritual if you want to go even a step deeper. Biologically, we are hardwired to be afraid. There's a part of our brain called the amygdala. Some people refer to it as the lizard brain, right? This most uh, basic element of survival, which is where you get the fight or flight response from. When you're threatened by something biologically, you um, very quickly remember this from bio and high school class, probably like you quickly make an assessment. Is this power that's coming against me um, too strong to overcome? In which case you flee, you run away, or do I have enough power to overcome it? In which case you fight it and you squash it. But that's, that's biologically wired into us just for our survival. But then related to that socially, because it's such an intrinsic part of our wiring, um, everything from politicians to marketers to frankly, church leaders very often use fear to motivate us because it's such an effective way to do it. And when you listen to what politicians say, it's not just um, the positive things that they think they can do for the country or the community. It's what terrible, horrible thing will befall you if the other team wins, right? If right. the other guy gets elected. Well, what's going to happen to your children? What's going to happen to your faith? What's going to happen to your church? It's so much fear. And frankly, you look at a lot of our marketing today. And a lot of it is fear-based. You're not going to be lovable. You're not going to be successful. You're not going to be pretty enough if you don't do X, Y, and Z or buy this product or do this thing. And in a lot of the church, we see the same tactics. Um, sadly, there are a lot of Christian leaders in our culture today who use fear to try to scare people essentially into following Jesus. I mean, one of the oldest tactics was using the fear of hell to drive people into the church and into the faith, which I, interestingly, Jesus only ever threatens people with hell who are the religious leaders keeping other people from him. Mm. He doesn't use it as a tactic of scaring people into loving him. No one loved Jesus because they were terrified that he was going to throw them into hell. That's not what he does. But we do that because it's such an effective tool. 
and we do it socially, right? We, we drum up all these things you should be afraid of as a Christian, all these people, all these movements, all these groups, because we want your donor dollars or we want your support or we want your attendance or we want you to back our candidate. And what's sad to me about that is, you know, we have not been given a spirit of fear, scripture tells us, but a spirit of power and love. And so those who are using fear as a motivator for Christians, to put it as frankly as I can, they're not leading us by the spirit of Christ. They are leading us by the spirit of antichrist. Mm. And that is, that's pandemic in the church today. It's everywhere. And I think that's why we're in the situation we're in. Well, thanks, Sky. In your answer, you address politics, but also hell and the Antichrist. <laughs> so I appreciate you. You're welcome. Bringing up any divisive things at all. Um, yeah, that, thanks for that answer. I couldn't uh, hearty amen. You, you use the the phrase in one of your books uh, that fears the currency of modern politics. And I, I, I guess as we're looking, New Hopers, as you're listening to this, and we're trying to give you practices, and and I, I know I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm sure Sky would say the same. We're, we're human. We get triggered by these things as well. But I think one of the practices is watch out for that fear manipulation. When you're hearing it in marketing, when you're hearing it in your politicians, and I'll invite it when you're hearing it in your pastors, call us out on it and don't respond. And and the pathway for follower of Jesus is, is love. You, you quote... Um, Henry Nowen, fear engenders fear. It never gives birth to love. So as we're trying to be people of love and pursue love, we think in our in our lizard brains, as you said, that fear is going to get us there. It actually feels good. It feels natural, but it takes us the opposite direction from where we're called uh, to go. So let's get to the third pathway that you lay out in your book. Um, if it's not uh, flight, if it's not fight, <laughs> you lay out this third pathway that I, I love the term you chose, incarnation. So paint us a beautiful picture of why as followers of Jesus, we're looking to engage politically. Incarnation is the biblical pathway. Yeah, let's start with the, the biblical idea of incarnation to begin with and how it's different than exodus and exile. In the Old Testament, God's people, and both of those other models, Exodus and Exile, they were just circumstances that God's people found themselves in, right? They're, they're slaves in Egypt, and they need to get out of there. They're exiles in Babylon, and they need to survive. That These pathways were responses to less than ideal circumstances. What you see in the New Testament, when Jesus shows up on the scene in the Gospels, he didn't show up on earth by accident. Right? He didn't wake up one day in Bethlehem as a child and go, oh, wow, look, I'm, I'm in a manger. Here I am. I guess I'll make the best of it. Scripture is clear that Jesus chose to leave heaven, to take on flesh and come and dwell among us. He chose the incarnation out of his love. And likewise, what makes the incarnation path different for the Christian is we need to look at where we find ourselves in the world today, in our, in our world, in our culture, in America, in the 21st century, in the midst of a pandemic in 2020. And rather than looking at this as, darn it, these are rotten circumstances we find ourselves in, and what do we, how do we make the best of it? And realize that, no, this is not just a rotten circumstance. This is the time and the place in the community to which we have been called. And we have a choice whether to embrace this moment as where God wants us to incarnate his kingdom mm -hmm. or to see it just as a lousy circumstance that we're going to make the best of till we can get out of it. And then, frankly, that's, mm -hmm. that's what I see in a lot of Christians right now. They look at the world and they just shake their head at it and uh, when can we get out of here? Or when can we go back to a time when it was better? Or when can we go forward to the kingdom of God and, and be done with it? Mm -hmm. But they don't actually love and embrace 
where they are. And think of, apply this to, if you have children, apply it to your families. Could you imagine if you looked at your child and said, you know, you were so much better when you were like a toddler, or I can't wait till you grow up and you're old enough to be useful and responsible, right? I mean, that child would have serious psychological problems if that's what their parents said to them all the time. But essentially that's what most of the culture hears Christians saying. Mm. Can't you go back to the way you used to be? Or can't you become more like I want you to be? Mm. But I refuse to love and accept you as you are right now. But that's not what Jesus did in the incarnation. He came and dwelt among us as we were, and he chose it. So that's the first thing that separates the path of incarnation is it's a choice. It's not just a response to a circumstance. Secondly, and I'll make these last two ones shorter, it's clear that uh, Exodus and exile were, were put in place to help God's people survive long enough to fulfill their ultimate purpose, which was to redeem the world through the coming Messiah. And for that reason, Exodus and exile were adequate for Old Testament faith. In the New Testament, Jesus doesn't find himself on earth and just decide, I need to figure out how to get by until I can ascend back to heaven. He comes to earth for the sake of others. He explicitly says he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. Likewise, we are here on this earth, as Paul says, uh, to be like Christ, to live as Christ, he said, to die as gain. We exist on the earth, not for our sake, not for the sake of the church, not for the sake of our community, our families, our um, institutions. We exist for the sake of the world. And we are to give ourselves away for others, not just circle the wagons and protect ourselves. Mm. And then finally, um, both Exodus and exile, as I said earlier, were about survival. How do we survive in Babylon long enough so we can get out of here in one piece? And that survival mindset is how a lot of Christians still think. But Jesus, over and over in his ministry shows in his incarnation, that he's not interested in just helping people survive. He's helping people flourish. The wedding at Cana is one of my favorite examples of this when they run out of wine and Jesus' mother comes to him and explains the situation. He didn't just provide enough wine to get by or adequate wine for the party. It was the best wine people had ever had and there was an abundance of it. Same thing with the miraculous feedings, right? 12 baskets of leftover food. And he always brings flourishing to the world, not just survival. It's not about getting by. It's about manifesting the beauty, the truth, and the goodness the abundance of God's kingdom. So as Christians then to engage this culture isn't just about getting by, it's not about surviving, but bringing flourishing. How can we through the gifts God has given us and through our role as faithful citizens actually seek the flourishing of all people to reach their fullest potential in God rather than just getting by. And that I think transforms the way we begin to view about our political lives. Mm. and what it means to engage in this community as faithful Christians who represent the kingdom of God. Yeah, what I love about it, and, and thanks for that, that, that was beautifully put, is that the incarnational path, as you paint that picture, transcends political parties, <clears throat> transcends ideology. So if you're sitting here today and you're part of our church and you, you tend to vote Democratic, you tend to vote Republican, or you're somewhere in the middle and all those people are in our church, um, all of us as followers of Jesus can walk the incarnational pathway. Um, it, it, it supersedes the, the political party. Uh, I, I really like that, which gets me to, to some follow-up questions. You know, th thanks for that, that overview of the book. And I, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. It's short. You can get through it quickly. It'll help frame up and, uh, and color in uh, the description Sky has given us today. So please, please grab a copy of that and read it. But it gets me to this idea of uh, division. You you hear the word partisanship a lot. 
the word tribalism. Some people may not be familiar with that term, but all of these words are interconnected. I'm almost 50. I can say in my lifetime that I've never, it's never felt more divided. I don't have the I don't know that I have the data to authenticate that, but it's never felt more divisive, more more partisan, um, more tribal. Certainly, that how that's how it feels like in, in the church. So, I guess why is that? That <laughs> why do we see that increasing trend towards tribalism, division, partisanship, and then as as the body of Christ that's made up of lots of different types of people coming together around King Jesus. How can we begin to come together instead of come apart? And how can we model that for the world? I got to think that's a piece of that incarnational pathway is modeling what it looks like uh, to to have something higher bring us together, that we have more in common than we have that divides us. So I know there's a lot there, but where are we going to go with that answer? Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about, first of all, why why are we so divided right now? And it's not it's not just a perception and it's not just by accident. I think it's quite real and I think it's actually deliberate. So um, three things come to mind. Number one, just demographically, the United States is more diverse now than it's ever been. Um, We are rapidly moving toward a scenario by the 2040s where white Americans will be the minority. And that is partly because of the 1965 immigration laws that were changed and the fact that far more immigrants after that started coming from Latin America, Asia, Africa. My father came here because of that uh, change. We are more religiously diverse as a result of that. We're not just a white Christian nation. Not that we ever were, but the demographic reality of America is we're the most pluralistic society that's probably ever existed in the history of the world. And that's a that's both to our credit and it's an enormous challenge. How do you get this diverse nation to function adequately. So that's number one. Number two, um, I think we're incredibly divided because of social media. And if you've seen that Netflix series, The Social Dilemma, I think it highlights it exactly right. Social media makes money by dividing us and making us more and more extreme in our views. And I won't bar- you know, get into the algorithms and all those stuff, but the internet and social media has, you know, you're almost, you're almost 50. I'm in my mid forties. We all remember or we both remember the world in which most people got their news from three news networks and a handful of newspapers, right? And now there are almost an infinite variety of news sources and there's an algorithm out there that's choosing to give you the ones that only you want to see and then takes you deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole and divides us more and more and more. So the media dynamics of the 21st century are separating us in a way that we've never seen before in American history. And that's kind of scary in a pluralistic society. And then third, finally, I think we're more divided than other because our political system is more broken. And what I mean by that is um, a lot of sociologists have written about what they call the big sort, which is how Americans are more mobile and we are choosing to live in communities with people that tend to think and live just like us. And then in response to that, the political parties have been gerrymandering congressional districts so that to get elected, you need to be a more extreme version of your party's ideas. It used to be a Democrat and Republican had to move to the center, be a little bit more moderate when it came to the general election in order to win those middle voters. But by gerrymandering the districts, they no longer worry about fighting a Democrat or Republican. They fight about worrying somebody, fighting somebody in their own party who might be a more extreme conservative Republican or a more extreme progressive Democrat. And that drives our politics more and more to the fringes rather than to the center. Mm. 
So all of these things taken together, diversity demographically, social media, and gerrymandering has made us more divided and more tribal. And it's it's tearing the society apart. And if we don't do so, we can't really do a ton about demographics. I mean, there's some who think we can through building a wall or changing immigration policy, but that that's kind of baked into the cake at this point. Um, if we don't do something about the effects of social media and gerrymandering, I do have great concern about what it means for the stability of our, at least political systems in this country. Well, now um, you've mentioned hell, antichrist, <laughs> so again, thanks, guy. Yeah, well, that's why I get to be a visitor. I just drop in and out and yeah. you can clean up the mess. Well, now that I'm thoroughly depressed and hopeless, <laughs> what what is some hope? You know, as we talk about, you, you know, one thing I love about you, your pastor on your podcast and your writings, you're totally for the church. You believe in the church. Give us some hope. We're a local church, right? I have a pastor, a bunch of local church people that are feeling all this. I think the vast majority of people are nodding as you're talking. So, mm -hmm. yes, that's giving more words to how I knew how to describe it. But he's hitting on something. What's our hope, uh, especially as a local body of Christ, in helping to begin to bring people back together? Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that the church is is the hope. And what you see going all the way back to the New Testament is the church is the community that brings together people who have no earthly right being together. <laughs> I mean, and this goes all the way back to Jesus picking his apostles, right? He picks Simon the Zealot, who essentially was a terrorist, right? A freedom fighter who believed in using violence to overthrow the Roman occupation of Israel. And then he has Matthew, who's a tax collector, a Jew who collects money for the Romans, betraying his own people. Right? Somebody once said to me, this would be like having Dick Cheney and Osama bin Laden in the same Bible study. Right? That, that's how crazy the, the community was that Jesus assembled. And it continued throughout the New Testament. And it continues throughout history. We need to realize that if we're creating churches that are just homogenous groups of people who all think exactly the same way about everything, we're probably not really united around the gospel of Jesus. Yeah. We're probably united more around a political ideology or cultural values or something else. But the church can be the community, the place in our communities that brings together that diversity and says, regardless of who you are, regardless of what your political views may be, you are a child of God, holy and dearly loved, and therefore you are my sister or brother, and I will share this bread with you, I will share this cup with you, and we will unite and overcome those differences. That takes a courageous church, though, and it takes a church that's willing to talk about these issues directly rather than just brush them under the rug. So the church is the hope, I think, but let me talk, <laughs> not to bring it down again, but let me talk about the danger. And that is, there are a lot of churches in America today who are abdicating that responsibility. Mm. They are not willing to put their neck on the line and address those controversial issues. They're not willing to make people uncomfortable by inviting others who are not like them into fellowship. Um, and frankly, I think by being silent on a lot of these issues, we are forfeiting, forfeiting or surrendering that whole area of spiritual formation and discipleship to the media. I mean, could you imagine a local church that said, we are not going to talk at all about marriage or sexuality because we don't think people are comfortable with it. And therefore, we're just going to let the, the culture and the media shape everyone's views on those issues. That would be like pastoral malpractice, right? But that's essentially what we've done when it comes to politics and our public life together and social issues. We said, oh, it's too controversial. People get upset. We're not going to talk about it. Essentially, what we say is that's an area of your life in the world that Jesus is not king over. So we don't have to talk about it. That's an 
that's malpractice. We can, and there are loads of churches that just won't go there, and therefore they're not able to bring the healing and wholeness and unity that we need in the world. They've just surrendered that, and and that grieves me, frankly. So the the church is the hope, if it will be the church, and if it will get the courage it needs to be the church again. Yeah, I love the image that you're you're painting of 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 the disciples and and even of the early church i mean we you know we we can pretty well approximate who was gathering around those tables uh from possibly temple prostitutes to roman soldiers to you know jewish folks to i mean wow mm-hmm. and 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 they found a way they weren't perfect I don't want to hold them up as a model of perfection we can read the letters and see plenty of imperfections but I think they did model for us what it looks like to be different types of people coming together around a common table. And when we're embodied gathering again and looking back to that, you know, six months ago, it was one of my favorite points of, of every Sunday. We do communion every Sunday and to look down at the diversity of folks coming to a common table. And I think that that is the hope of the world the church can offer. So, um, yeah, thanks for that. We're, we're getting tight on time. I, man, I could talk for, for so long. Um, but, but I guess as you're, as you're thinking about, you can take this question to kind of, as we bring it to an end here, any way you want, but as you're kind of talking to our folks and we've touched on fear, we've touched on how do we know what truth is? We've touched on so many different things, just brushed across them, but kind of, this is your shot to talk to, you know, a thousand people in Portland, Oregon about following Jesus politically. Like, like, what do you say to us? What's your counsel? You've got, you do have your finger on the pulse of a lot of what's going on. You read broadly, you talk to people all over the world. Um, as we're looking kind of in the heart of the series is help us. What are some practical things followers of Jesus can do to move us forward, to become folks that are incarnational Christians, engaging, being good citizens, but following King Jesus? What would be kind of one or two things yeah. you would leave us with? Um, great question. Let me try to be as practical as I can. Number one, I would say do not get your news via social media. Mm. Either, either turn off social media entirely, or if, if you can, weed out the new stuff and just don't trust it, don't read it, don't engage it. Instead, get your facts, get your, your news as much as possible from reading rather than watching. Things that are written, I'm not saying I'm not endorsing every written media format, obviously, but it tends to be less sensational and uh, a bit more rigorous. So read more than you watch and then engage those source, a, a diversity of sources, not just one in order to inform yourself. And then secondly, um, you've got to try to think beyond national politics. It seems like so much of our imagination now is just captured by national stuff mm. and realize that to walk that road of incarnation means to do it locally, mm. to, to take responsibility for your community, for your neighborhood, for your school, for your town, for wherever you find yourself and, and ask yourself, what, what does God want me to do right here? Mm-hmm. Uh, using my voice, my money, my skills, my abilities, my vote in order to better bring flourishing to the people around me. Um, so get involved locally. And then finally, as you listen to different people from different sources uh, politically, ask yourself, who is this person asking me to fear? Mm-hmm. And what would it look like if I didn't fear that person or group, but I saw them as my neighbor? How would that change the way I approach this issue or this topic or whatever they're asking me to do? Who are they asking me to fear? And what would it look like if I saw them as my neighbor 
instead of a threat? Yeah, that's such a great question and very convicting. Um, in we'll we'll stretch our time a little bit. Our team will yell at me a little bit. That's all right. Um, let's do one minute. Just I want to give you the not that you haven't already been doing this, but I want to give you the the pastoral mantle for our church for a minute here as we close with this. And you, I, I, I wrote down this quote that's near the end of your book, The Voting Booth, and you say this, the most important thing is not what you decide inside the voting booth, but how you love your neighbors once you leave it. Um, just, I know you could probably preach for a long time, you're a preacher, but preach to us, pastor us for a minute, uh, take us out with that challenge. What is that? What might that look like? Yeah, I, th I think um, we should certainly enter the voting booth with our faith in hand and, and try to do it as informed as we possibly can. But if we expect the people we elect to office to represent Jesus for us, then we are surrendering or abdicating a responsibility that can never be outsourced. Yeah. It's something that we are called to as Christ people ourselves. We have to manifest his presence to the people we encounter every day, everywhere we go. Um, and, and ultimately that's what's gonna make a difference in our world. It isn't gonna be, I, I sincerely believe that when we stand before the Lord one day and must give an account of our life, it's primarily not gonna be him asking us, who did you vote for? <laughs> it's gonna be, how did you love that neighbor who was in need? How did you love that, that neighbor, coworker, whatever, who you vehemently disagreed with? How are you going to love and, and do what is good for that person that I put into your life that looks nothing like you, that thinks nothing like you, that believes nothing like you, but nonetheless was made in my image and you were called to love? Hmm. That's what the church is supposed to be about. So yeah, we should take our political responsibilities seriously and faithfully, but it should never supersede our responsibility to the people we encounter every day made in Christ's image. Thanks for pastoring us. I'm I'm really grateful for you and for your ministry. Uh, your website, uh, skyjatani.com, S-K-Y-E-J-E-T-H-A-N-I.com has pretty much everything you've ever done. It's, again, impressive. Uh, your With God Daily devotional, I read that, and it's deep, and it encourages me often. Thank you for that. Uh, I would encourage you new hopers to sign up for that. And then the Holy uh, Post podcast is awesome. A lot about culture, a lot about theology and the intersection, and then a lot of laughter. It's it's with Phil Vischer, I think is how you say his name, the VeggieTales guy. And he's always trying to interrupt you or serious uh, talking with lots of humor and jokes. And, you know, I love the interaction. So we have fun. Yeah. Check out all of that. Sky, would you pray for New Hope, our church uh, in the season? I would really appreciate that. Certainly. Lord, thank you for your kindness and grace to us, for your patience with us. We uh, believe that you can accomplish all that you wish to accomplish without us, and yet we are amazed at the dignity you bestow on us, that through us you want to manifest your kingdom and bless the world. I pray for the, the people at New Hope that you would release them from their fear, that your spirit would come and fill them with both love and power, Love not to dominate or, or coerce others and power not to coerce or dominate others, but that these would be used so that they could withstand the, the divisions and abuses that are happening in our world and come alongside those who need your hand most. Mm -hmm. That through them, you would reveal your light and your kingdom and that they would manifest the beauty and the truth and the grace of your kingdom where they are. 
bless them in this season, bless their leadership, and may the church there um, have the courage to be that source of healing and unity that our culture needs right now. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Sky. Have a great day. Blessings on your ministry. Thank you.